Hello, and welcome to H-Law's Legal History Podcast. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Daniel Sharpstein is a professor of law and history and co-directs the George Barrett Social Justice Program at Vanderbilt University. Professor Sharfstein's scholarship focuses on the legal history of race in the United States. Professor Sharfstein, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Could you begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself, your background, and how you came to write Thunder in the Mountains? I've been teaching at Vanderbilt University for about 10 years. Uh, I teach property law and American legal history and uh, legal history of race in the U.S. Uh, and right now I'm also teaching a class on the early history of African Americans in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, I came from the uh, uh, Washington, D.C. area, Maryland, uh, spent a lot of time living in the Northeast and, and in Los Angeles uh, before winding up in Nashville. And uh, I... Thunder in the Mountains uh, uh, is my second book, and uh, the first book, it, it really uh, it grew out of my first book. Uh, first book, The Invisible Line, is a history of three families who uh, started out as people of color and at different points in, in American history crossed the color line and assimilated into white communities. And one of the main figures in the book was, was a man named O.S.B. Wall. And... Wall was uh, born a slave in North Carolina, was freed by his father and master uh, to be raised by radical Quaker abolitionists in Ohio, wound up being commissioned a captain in, in the Union Army, and after the war, he worked in the Freedmen's Bureau, first in Charleston, South Carolina, and then in the Washington, D.C. office. And when I was researching Wall's story, I looked for letters between Wall and the commissioner of the Freedmen's Bureau, a man named Oliver Otis Howard, and I found a group of letters that uh, they wrote to each other in the heyday of Reconstruction, 1867-1868, uh, in Howard's papers at, at Bowdoin College in, in Maine. And then there's this 10-year gap and I found a letter that O.S.B. Wall wrote to Howard in 1878, and it was addressed to Howard in Portland, Oregon, and it it asked him how uh, conditions were in the Northwest and whether Washington Territory would be a good place to resettle African Americans from the Deep South. And it was a... a curious letter for me, uh, in part because uh, Howard was from Maine. He was a fixture of Washington, D.C. during Reconstruction. Uh, and Portland, Oregon just seemed to be uh, about as far away as you can get from those places and still be in the continental United States. Uh, so I wondered, you know, how did Howard get out uh, to, to Oregon? Why did he move there? And when I did a little research, I, I found that Howard was there uh, commanding the Department of the Columbia for the Army, uh, Department of the Columbia River, with with uh, responsibility for troops in 
Oregon and Washington Territory and Idaho Territory and Alaska Territory. And, uh, and then I, I saw that uh, Howard's main military action uh, in the years that he spent in the Northwest was the Nez Perce War of 1877. And you know, for me, this uh, was uh, something that I, I sort of noted uh, while I was writing the first book, and it was just something I couldn't put away, uh, because Howard was really a central figure uh, in Reconstruction as head of the Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, and, you know, I think of his work as uh, being really important to uh, early efforts to give substance and meaning to the constitutional values of liberty and equality. Uh, in which were boldly pronounced but never really defined in the 13th and 14th Amendments. Uh, and the Nez Perce War, his main adversary was a young Nez Perce leader named Chief Joseph. And I, 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 was, I found Howard's role in this war uh, really fascinating because Joseph was someone who uh, emerged after the Nez Perce War as one of the leading figures of dissent from the post-Reconstruction consensus, and was someone who was highly conversant in talking about liberty and equality in a way that uh, Howard would have immediately recognized. Uh, so the idea that you know, a champion of liberty and equality would uh, wind up waging war on another champion, uh, it, you know, for me, that uh, spoke volumes about what America was becoming uh, in in the years that followed Reconstruction. What were some of your research methods while writing your book? The the Nez Perce War is is a war that uh, you know in large part because of Chief Joseph's celebrity. Uh, it, it's something that people have been talking about and have been very interested in uh, for 140 years from the moment the, the the war was fought. And as a result, there are tremendous archives. Uh, and, you know, I wanted in, in this book, first and foremost, to, uh, you know, to tell Howard's story and also to really privilege Nez Perce voices and, and and tell a, a deep story about Joseph that uh, sort of cuts through some of the legend that's accreted around him. Um, and so my first goal was really to delve into the, the tremendous archival resources. You know, a lot of the, the archives were uh, created by people who were not uh, Academic historians, but were very interested in the Nez Perce War. There, there was a the the biggest archive is an archive at Washington State University. I think it's really the most important Nez Perce War archive. And there are the papers of a man who was a self-educated sheep rancher in Yakima, Washington, named Lucullus Virgil McWhorter. And McWhorter was somebody who had moved from Ohio to uh, to Washington State uh, in 
precisely to be near Native Americans. He had a reputation for being friendly to the local Yakima Indians. And uh, in the Yakima Valley, they're actually descendants of, of Joseph's band. And actually, including people who had fought and then survived the war, um, wound up being seasonal hop pickers. Uh, and uh, because of McWhorter's reputation, they wound up camping on his land. And McWhorter uh, began talking with uh, a nephew of Chief Joseph named Yellow Wolf, who was a young warrior during the war. And, uh, and their conversation wound up lasting for 28 years. And uh, he wound up, uh, McWhorter wound up devoting much of his life to tracking down every Nez Perce survivor of the war, and really then tracking down every soldier who had fought in the war, every settler who who remained, who remembered the war, and interviewing them, uh, interviewing them in in great detail. And when he died, he gave his papers to Washington State. Uh, they thought they were getting a few Nez Perce artifacts that they could throw into their treasure room. And instead, they got dozens of linear feet of, of interview transcripts. Um, so, you know, really plumbing the archives was a big part of my, my task. Uh, and then I thought it was very important to travel the Nez Perce Trail, uh, and really see the, the land, uh, and see the terrain. Um, I had never really traveled at all in the inland west, in the mountain west. And this was, uh, really, I found, you know, usually when I write about something, I, I want to go to the place that I've written about just, or, or that I'm writing about just to get, uh, you know, to see if there's anything that I'm really missing in my story. And I think traveling the Nez Perce Trail, uh, about 1400 miles, from uh, northeastern Oregon through northern Idaho, along the Idaho-Montana border, uh, down into Wyoming, and then back up through Montana, uh, almost to the Canadian border. Uh, that was, I think, essential to understanding uh, how the war was fought and really what the stakes were for for Joseph's people. Um, and then in addition to that, uh, I thought it was important not just to drive the trail uh, and, you know, hike along the trail, but huge amount of this war hinged on uh, uh, horses. So the Nez Perce families that were uh, fighting in this war, they were horse-herding families, and their ability to fight in this war uh, really depended on the the health of their herd that they took with them on this incredible journey. Uh, and the army fought this primarily as a cavalry action. Uh, so, the, you know, a lot of the correspondence and a lot of the first-hand recollection were in a way, you know, filtered through, uh, uh, the, or were, were told through the perspective of people who were 
riding the trail on top of horses. Uh, now, I had uh, never really ridden horses. All my life I'd been told I was allergic to horses. Uh, so I, uh, what, one of the first calls I made when I knew this would be my project was to the Vanderbilt Allergy Clinic. Uh, to see if there was a way they could uh, inject me with something and turn me into the Marlboro Man. Uh, and they just told me, actually, I wasn't really allergic to horses, that I could just take Claritin, which I did. And then I took horseback riding lessons and then spent a week um, uh, in the Yellowstone backcountry uh, riding in an area where the Nez Perce families cross. Um, so, you know, between the archival research, um, the uh, first-hand travel and observation and, and horseback riding, uh, you, you know, that was, uh, a, a huge part of, of the research that went into this book. Could you introduce us to the main characters in your narrative? So, this book started with my interest in Oliver Otis Howard. Um, Howard was a Maine Yankee, uh, a West Point graduate, and he was someone who, um, uh, who you know, was really defined by uh, something that happened when when he was about uh, 26 years old, uh, relatively recently minted uh, uh, lieutenant in in the army. Um, uh, he, he was posted in what he thought was the worst, most remote place imaginable, uh, which is Tampa, Florida. And he uh, was a thousand miles uh, from his wife and baby boy and was incredibly depressed. And then God visited him. Uh, he... Uh, he viewed this um, religious awakening as really uh, uh, an affirmation that God had put him on earth to do something significant. And right as the Civil War was breaking out, he was contemplating leaving the army um, going to seminary and pursuing the ministry. But once the war broke out, he was elected uh, colonel of a regiment of Maine volunteers and then very quickly was promoted, I think before he had even uh, seen action, to, uh, uh, to brigadier general. And he fought through the Civil War and wound up, uh, he, he had some highs and lows, but always was able to kind of hold on to his command and ended the war as one of Sherman's commanders in the March to the Sea and in the Carolinas campaign. And while he was fighting, he was continually meeting uh, men and women who had crossed army lines searching for freedom. And he had not been particularly political before the war, uh, but during the war, he robustly embraced abolitionism and 
known not only as uh, a teetotaling Christian general, uh, but also as uh, a general who had a deep faith in the equality of African Americans, the necessity of their liberty. Uh, he believed very early on uh, in, in uh, uh, arming black soldiers. And uh, he was someone who uh, viewed the war and the war on slavery uh, as uh, clearly the, the, the purpose that, that God had put him on earth uh, to, to do. Um, he, he, and after the war, uh, he, or actually in the, the final days of the war, he was asked to head the Freedmen's Bureau, which was this new agency that was devoted to uh, helping some four million newly freed people walk a path from slavery to citizenship. And you know, he was he was a young man who was about 34 years old as the war was ending. And he was at that point wondering, uh, you know, God had put him in a union officer's uniform to for, for a reason. Uh, but then he was wondering if his best days were behind him. Uh, and then this offer to run the Freedmen's Bureau came. And he thought, now this is truly what God put me on earth to do. And so his job was, was to run this agency. Uh, and then, and, and he thought, uh, this was a heaven sent opportunity, literally. And then reconstruction collapsed and the Freedmen's Bureau was, was crushed and he was buried with corruption inquiries and almost uh, uh, driven into bankruptcy. And in 1874, when he was finally cleared by one uh, uh, one final corruption inquiry, he rejoined the active duty military, and that's when he was sent to the Northwest. And he viewed this as a willing exile and a chance to redeem himself in the eyes of the nation and sort of get back to working for Grant and Sherman again and, and back into uh, uh, the, the good graces of, of the nation. Um, so he was someone who had come to the Northwest uh, looking for redemption. And a big part of his job was uh, to negotiate with uh, Native American tribes and convince people and really force people onto reservations. While he was there, uh, his biggest adversary was Chief Joseph. And Joseph is, is really the, the heart of the book. Um, he was about 10 years younger, uh, than Howard. And when he was about 30 years old, it, the spring of 1872, um, white settlers had started coming onto his ancestral land in the Wallawa Valley, right in the northeast far northeast corner of Oregon. And he took it upon himself to try and uh, change federal policy. You know, when he talked to the settlers and told them that they were trespassing, they informed them, they, they informed Joseph that under an 1863 treaty um, signed by leaders of other Nez Perce bands, the Wallawa Valley had been 
ceded to the federal government. Uh, it had been put into the public domain, and it had been divided up into homesteads and was being given out to, to ranchers and farmers. And Joseph took it upon himself to try and reach the federal government and change federal policy. A really tall order for a young man who was about 2,500 miles from Washington, D.C., uh, in a valley that was so isolated that when the settlers tried to move in, they had to take apart their wagons and climb with the wagon parts to the top of the mountain, reassemble them, and then roll into the Wallala Valley. And what's more, he didn't speak English. Uh, he only did his talking in, in Nez Perce and in the regional trade language, Chinook jargon. Uh, so Joseph was someone who uh, had decided that he would advocate for his people, uh, that he would try and reach out to any federal official he could find. And you know, for five years, he uh, advocated and negotiated. And then in 1877, uh, he lived through the Nez Perce War. Uh, the, uh, and then after the war, uh, he continued his advocacy, uh, for, for another 27 years, uh, until his, his death in 1904. Um, the, it, so Howard and Joseph are really the, the two central characters in, in the narrative. And then there are two other characters who, who two other figures who I spend a lot of time with. Uh, because they helped carry the legacy of Joseph and Howard into the 20th century. One of them is Howard's aide-de-camp and lieutenant in the Nez Perce War, uh, a man named Charles Erskine Scott Wood. Um, Wood was West Point class of 74. And uh, you know, in many ways, uh, as a, his political consciousness going into the war was a tabula rasa. You know, someone who is class of 74, he had been too young to fight in the Civil War and really had been too young to understand the, the central political struggles and commitments of, of that moment. Uh, you, you know, in West Point, you, you go to West Point in 1870 and, uh, there's just this stark divide to, people who had fought in the war and people who were too young and had missed it. Uh, and so for him, uh, he, you know, he said what he liked most about West Point was the waltzes that they held. Uh, he really loved to dance. Uh, and then he was sent to the Northwest uh, and uh, worked as Howard Dade through the war in 1877 and met Chief Joseph at the moment of surrender. And at that moment, uh, you know, his, his political consciousness really changed. Uh, he'd spent 24 hours after the surrender as Joseph's minder, uh, spent it in conversation with him. And within a few years, he washed out of the army, uh, hung out a shingle, and wound up practicing law uh, for decades in Portland, Oregon. He was a very successful lawyer and over time became increasingly radical in his politics. Uh, and he's 
kind of a gift to historians because not not only does he have this interesting transformation, but he lives forever. So he uh, was uh, when the Spanish-American War broke out uh, by 1899. He was railing against imperialism in the Philippines, uh, and then he winds up protecting the the free speech rights of anarchists and birth control advocates like Margaret Sanger. Um, he is involved in, uh, you know, just about every uh, liberal left cause, uh, the Committee to Protect the Scottsboro Boys, uh, Committee to Protect Leon Trotsky. Uh, in the 1930s, as an old man, he's called in front of the House Un-American Activities Committee. And when he's 91 years old, uh, he um, writes a letter uh, protesting the internment of Japanese Americans. And he's someone who uh, just lived a remarkable American life. And when he was eight years old, he saw Abraham Lincoln on his way to his first inauguration. And when he's 90, he's, he's uh, protesting the internment. And all the way he talks about his transformation uh, through his experience in the Nez Perce War and through his encounter with Chief Joseph. And he's, he's a figure who kind of allows us to, to see how uh, Chief Joseph he forms this crucial bridge between uh, the, uh, the politics of abolition, union, and reconstruction, and the causes and concerns of the 20th century. Uh, and a final character in the narrative, uh, or central character in the narrative, is Yellow Wolf, uh, Chief Joseph's nephew. And he was someone who really uh, came of age in the summer of 1877 during the Nez Perce War. Uh, someone who started out a young warrior and, uh, you know, again and again in combat, uh, proved himself to be a uh, really important member uh, of, of the bands that, that were fleeing the army. Um, when the war ended, you know, for 30 years, he stayed silent about his role. He wound up uh, uh, living with Joseph, uh, you know, first in exile in Oklahoma, then uh, in the uh, on the Colville Indian Reservation um, uh, in sort of north central Washington, and uh, and after thirty years, when he was in his early fifties, that's when he began talking with Lucullus Virgil McWhorter and became this central figure in reclaiming the history of the Nez Perce War uh, for the Nez Perce people. Uh, and is you know, really the the trigger for uh, this large scale attempt to, to take oral histories uh, among the Nez Perce. Um, in his old age, uh, he also became one of the first people to uh, travel the Nez Perce Trail in kind of a conscious way uh, to commemorate what was happening uh, with Lucullus Virgil McWhorter. Uh, they they drove to various battlefields and then he would walk the battlefields and 
talk about different things that happened in different places, and and uh, McWhorter mapped them. And so he's kind of a central figure in the the persistence of memory uh, of of the war. Uh, so those are the four main characters: um, uh, Howard, Joseph, Charles Erskine, Scott Wood, and Yellow Wolf. What are some of the different ways the nations pivot from emancipation to Jim Crow and empire can be explained? So when we think about uh, the the nation in the final decades of the 19th century, we think 1865, in many ways, the U.S. was the beacon of liberty and equality to the world. After uh, fighting a war to abolish slavery, after creating the Freedmen's Bureau, and by 1900, uh, Jim Crow is the policy of the South and really much of the rest of the country, and uh, the U.S. is is involved uh, in all kinds of imperial activity uh, from San Juan to Manila, Uh, and yeah, it's, it's a, a really uh, stunning transformation. And I, I think of the, the story, uh, it, you know, as being as being explained in a couple ways. Um, so one, we we can talk about the nation's pivot as just a, a pure backlash to Reconstruction. There is this, uh, you know, rejection of the the basic. Uh, foundational values of universal liberty and equality, and uh, you, you know it's and the nation you know turned in all kinds of ways uh, you know from you know, all of these uh, egalitarian possibilities to uh, what the historian Willie Forbath called the the modern illiberal state. Um, but in, in another way, we, we can also think of the pivot you know, less as pure rejection of Reconstruction and, you know, in crucial ways uh, as an extension of Reconstruction. You know, in certain ways, the, uh, the, the ideological content of Reconstruction gets leached out uh, as Reconstruction collapses but there's, what remains is this large, ambitious imperial state, right? It's uh, it, you know the 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 South was uh, it, you know it's a state that was uh, that was capable of occupying the South, and then it became a state that that was capable of you know conquering and occupying the West, uh, and then conquering and occupying the world. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I mean, these are, uh, uh, you know, two basic ways of thinking about, uh, the, the moment. And I think it, it just gets a little more complicated when, uh, you look at the, uh, individual figures and who are involved, and in particular people who you know, were involved in the, Civil War and in the occupation of the South, uh, and then wound up uh, moving on uh, to points west uh, and 
and you know out into the world in in these imperial missions what does thunder in the mountains tell us about developing ideas of citizenship in the u.s so i think it tells a couple of stories about citizenship now in on uh it, and about uh conflicting conceptions of citizenship so on one hand there's uh the really important concern of reconstruction about whether citizenship was unitary or uh or tiered you know, whether being an american citizen really meant one thing you know one bundle of rights uh one set of privileges and immunities and uh and and one real one set of entitlements uh, that any American could claim, or whether uh, different Americans had different bundles of rights, uh, depending on all kinds of things, uh, whether you were white or of color, whether you were a man or a woman, whether you were uh, young or old. Uh, and uh, so that's one thing. Uh, you know, in Thunder in the Mountains, uh, you know, explores how, uh, you know, that battle, uh, of reconstruction sort of reverberates in the years that follow. Uh, and in addition, um, when, when Howard, uh, goes to the Northwest and is thinking about, uh, the importance of a robust reservation policy. Um, he uh, embraces a conception of citizenship where uh, he, you know, he thinks that Native Americans are perfectly capable of being American citizens, but only if they assimilate. Uh, and uh, and this conflict is really also a conflict over citizenship in terms of whether citizenship means assimilation or whether citizenship can accommodate pluralism. Um, you know, Howard envisioned Native Americans as citizens only insofar as they were willing to farm small plots of land, dress in Western clothes, worship in churches, and really, uh, you know, strive to, uh, live a life indistinguishable from other Americans. Whereas Chief Joseph, uh, actually expressed a, a vision of being American uh that initially it starts out as sovereignty that that you know they that his people are entitled to live any way they want because they're a sovereign people but kind of shades into uh the right to uh live a, a very different kind of life you know to to worship a different religion to you know pursue uh uh, their traditional lives as uh, nomadic herders moving with the season. And that's a bait over citizenship that uh, Charles Erskine Scott Wood, um, uh, looking at Howard's, uh, Howard's commitment to assimilation, uh, 
one of the key moments was uh, for him and his political development is right after the Spanish-American War. Uh, he says, you know, you know, to be an American and to be free should mean that it, you know we we shouldn't have to all live the same lives and worship the same gods. Uh, we should be free to go to hell uh, if we want to. How were Native Americans viewed under U.S. law in the 1870s? So, it's a good question. Um, under the 14th Amendment, uh, there was an exclusion for birthright citizenship to people who were not under the jurisdiction of the United States. And Native Americans who were governed by treaties uh, and living in the, as tribes were not regarded as citizenship. Um, so, you know, at a, a basic level, uh, they were not citizens. They couldn't uh, go to court. They couldn't vote. Uh, and you know, they had these um, uh, these separate sovereignties and were very knowledgeable and invested in, knowledgeable about and invested in their treaty rights. Um, at the same time, you know, in many ways, uh, they were um, also subjects of the federal government in an unmediated way. And with the exception, it's mediated through treaties, but in many ways, uh, the, you know, the federal government uh, took responsibility for uh, for running and administering the the reservation, and that meant that uh, Native Americans were you know, they weren't citizens. Uh, they weren't uh, certainly weren't citizens of state, uh, but they were you know, subject to the growing capacity to rule uh, that the federal government was, was developing. How does General Howard's career highlight the American struggle over the proper size, scope, and purpose of government? So, as head of the Freedmen's Bureau, you know, his role was not just in helping define liberty and equality. His role was also in, was initiating a <clears throat> new experiment in governing. The, the Freedmen's Bureau was a, really the, the first big federal social welfare agency in American history. They, uh, were an employment agency and found you know, thousands of paying jobs for, for freed people. They also built hospitals and asylums and orphanages and entire school systems, court systems to arbitrate disputes. And so this was a big and ambitious attempt to sort of expand the, the capacity of government. And it was a big intervention into individual lives, really uh, 
you know, using the government to uh, to ensure that the that people could live freely and equally. Now, at the same time, you know, it was big, it was ambitious, but it was also limited in many ways and regarded as temporary. Uh, and so, you know, there, there, and and at end, what's more, it was uh, the subject of fierce political conflict during its entire duration. So, you know, Howard's career uh, in the Freedmen's Bureau um, sort of put him in a place as a, a lightning rod for for conflicts over, you know, what government should do. You know, should it, uh, you know, is its primary purpose to ensure equality for all, uh, or is its primary purpose in drawing the boundaries between, you know, different classes of Americans who have different bundles of rights, and then policing and protecting those boundaries, and essentially, uh, you know, making the world safer uh, uh, for for white settlers in the West and really uh, uh, white people and white men uh, everywhere else. Uh, he, you know, in his experience in the Freedmen's Bureau, uh, he, you know, on, he, he's fighting on the side of, uh, you know, government that's really devoted to liberty and equality uh, and, uh, and this unitary notion of liberty and equality. But then when he's in the Indian Wars, uh, he, you know, he is really fighting, uh, on, on the side of, uh, this notion that, uh, there are different tiers of Americanness, uh, and the government's job is to, uh, to create those tiers, uh, and, and keep them distinct. What role did Howard envision for the Freedmen's Bureau in defining freedom and property rights? So initially, Howard envisioned African American liberty and equality as something that was that would be rooted in property ownership, uh, and he had uh, jurisdiction over thousands and thousands, really hundreds of thousands of acres of confiscated Confederate land, and his plan initially was to distribute that land in small plots to African Americans. And as small farm owners, as yeoman farmers, they would be able to support themselves and essentially be independent. Uh, they would not uh, have to bargain with former masters over wages. They wouldn't be subject to labor markets and uh, the markets for international cash crop. And, you know, as landowners, uh, they would just, the, the thought would be they would be entitled to uh, a certain level of respect that was just built into the, the sovereignty uh, you get from, from owning your own piece of land. Um, but very early on in the summer of 1865, President Johnson rescinded Howard's order, uh, instead redistributed the land to its former title owners, 
And, uh, and then Howard had to rethink what liberty and equality would be rooted in. Uh, and from property, uh, liberty and equality, uh, went to contract. And, uh, the, story of African-American freedom uh, after the land distribution didn't work out uh, was that essentially African-Americans in the South would be a landless hireling class, uh, that they would uh, have to work uh, and they would have to essentially work for their former masters. And it was thought that... Um, uh, Howard was an eternal optimist. You know, as, uh, you know, plan A would fail, he would immediately turn to plan B. And he thought through contract, uh, you know, like, like many abolitionists and free labor advocates, uh, he believed that contract could really, uh, also serve as a mechanism for leveraging African Americans into, uh, you know, new roles as citizens. Uh, but it was a much harder path, uh, and really from the beginning, uh, Howard had a sense that the Freedmen's Bureau's mission was, was compromised, uh, and that they were always, uh, you know, perpetually trying to, uh, implement the next best thing. How did Chief Joseph leverage legal language in terms of equality and justice to assert that the settlers in Ohio's Wallowa Valley were trespassers and invaders? So, it's a really interesting question. I, I think that, uh, you know, Joseph had, at the beginning, 1872, when he first starts arguing that his land is rightfully his, you know, rightfully belongs to his people. Um, he has two real points of reference. You know, one is there are two treaties, uh, an 1855 treaty that guaranteed the Wallowa Valley in Oregon to the, the Nez Perce tribe. And then this 1863 treaty that ceded about 90% of the 1855 treaty lands to the government and created this radically smaller reservation. Uh, and that was something that, uh, you know, only the leaders of bands that already lived within the 1863 reservation boundaries signed the treaty. So he had these two treaties. Uh, one that his father signed, one that no one from his band signed. And, you know, he had a strong sense that, uh, you know, that lack of representation was crucial. Uh, and if you, uh, didn't think that not being represented at a treaty negotiation mattered, then Fundamentally, you didn't respect the equality of, of the Nez Perce people. Um, the second point of reference that he had was 
the long history of trade and commerce uh, between the Nez Perce people and white settlers. So what what Joseph said about the the taking of his land in 1863 was that it was uh, as if the government had gone to him and said, uh, Joseph, I want your land, will you sell it? Or I want your horse, will you sell it? But Joseph, I want your horse, will you sell it? And Joseph would say, no, it's not for sale. And so then the government goes to Joseph's neighbor and says, uh, I really like Joseph's horse. The neighbor said, I'll sell it to you. <laughs> so the government pays the neighbor and then comes back to Joseph and says, I bought your horse. And both of those, the, the treaties and the commercial analogy, uh, gave him talking points, gave him a rhetoric of rights that, uh, a, and a rhetoric of legal language that immediately struck chords in everyone he talked to. Uh, you know, when the settlers first came in, you know, Joseph easily could have stayed away from them. Uh, he, or, you know, he could have taken up arms and just wiped them out. They were a pretty vulnerable group. Uh, instead, he, you know, knocked on their doors and, uh, introduced himself and told them that they were trespassing. And he gave his reasons. Uh, and, he, you know, instead of thinking that this is something they could just, uh, uh, individually negotiate their way around, you know, pay him off. I think they realized that his language compelled them to uh, raise the question to higher authorities. So very early on, uh, you know, he must have uh, started talking in June of 1872, and July 4th, 1872, uh, he was invited to a... July 4th celebration, one valley over, which was uh, an area that had been settled for a decade or so. And he was invited to meet with uh, the local congressman who was home from Washington, D.C. on recess, and with a uh, recently departed federal superintendent of, of Indian Affairs for Oregon. And almost immediately, you know, he was invited to present his claim uh, you know, he, he wasn't a citizen, he couldn't sue, uh, but he was invited to present his claim in, uh, you know, almost a quasi-legal forum. And people recognized, uh, that this was a serious claim. And what's amazing is, despite all the challenges, um, you know, within a year, President Grant uh, issued an executive order restoring a large portion of the Wallawa Valley to the roaming Nez Perce band. Um, and in the end, that, that executive order didn't resolve much. It was reversed two years later by another executive order. But, you know, that, that, uh, really marked the beginning of Joseph's advocacy in a very legal way. And when he had the setback in 1875, he didn't think of that as the end of the story at all. He just 
thought of that as uh, just a, a new moment for advocacy and for continued struggle. You said earlier that Chief Joseph didn't speak English. Um, how and what methods did he use to navigate the U.S. power structure and forge alliances with government officials? So I think this was one of the more interesting aspects of the story as I was researching it, more, more surprising. Um, so he spoke through interpreters, and it was a range of interpreters, um, uh, you know, people who worked with the um, Indian agents on the reservation. Um, there were settlers who spoke Nez Perce or Chinook jargon. Um, but his main method was to um, just find any federal official he could, you know, anyone who was nearby, uh, and press his case. And every time he did that, he pretty much got the same answer, which was, the point you make is really serious and important, and you might be right, but what do you expect me to do? I'm just one person in this, you know, mammoth bureaucracy, and I'm 2,500 miles from Washington, and I'm not empowered to do anything. But he just kept doing that, and they would write letters to Washington, and, you know, sometimes they would essentially be unopened and, and just fall on deaf ears. Uh, but often enough, uh, they, those, those letters got an audience in Washington and things would happen. Uh, and so he would find any federal official he could and he realized that, uh, you know, in a way, making his case would always keep his case open. That uh, the government in Washington actually was remarkably responsive to uh, you know, the the observations and recommendations of people out in the field, and you know it could set a policy course, but nothing was ever completely resolved. There's always this way to reopen it. There's always some way. And he saw civilian officials and would make his case and they would, they would write their letters and it would do the work that Joseph saw it was doing. And, and then military officials would start, uh, were eventually sent into the Wallowa Valley to monitor the situation, to keep the peace. This was in 1874, 75, 76. And Joseph uh, saw those officers not as threats, but just as additional bureaucrats who had a different line into Washington, you know, from cavalry officer to you know, Howard as department commander to the Secretary of War to the President, and he would make his case to them, and they would report up the chain, and often that 
succeeded in of reopening the question of who truly owned and rightfully owned the Wallala Valley. Uh, and, you know, the, what, what's amazing about that is those military officers who he spoke to, um, at least one of them, uh, a man named Stephen Whipple, um, was a, uh, officer who really begun his career in Humboldt County, California, uh, in the 1860s as a straight up Indian killer. Uh, he was someone who oversaw the extermination of Native Americans in Northern California and, uh, was someone who was, you know, had made his reputation, uh, by dehumanizing and, and attacking Indians. And when he met Joseph, and heard Joseph out, uh, he wound up uh, becoming a major advocate for Joseph uh, in in 1875, uh, and it led to uh, a new moment, uh, you know, one of many moments in the period before the war when the ownership of the Wallala Valley was once again up for grabs. In what ways was Joseph's war less a series of military tactics than a cruel lesson on what the government could do to Americans as they tried to live the lives they wanted? So when I wrote that, um, part of it uh, uh, had to do with the fact that um, the 1877 war, because Joseph was the main spokesman, uh, in, and the main advocate for uh, the Nez Perce bands that were resisting moving on to reservations. Um, when war broke out, everything that happened was attributed to him and his military genius. Um, and so when the war ended, he was hailed as, uh, you know, he was, and actually all through the war, you know, he was, Achilles, he was Hannibal. Uh, he, you know, for month after month, uh, these families had, you know, improbably outrun the government, uh, and in battles had, had routed the government. And it was all attributed to Joseph. He was thought of as, as the Red Napoleon. Um, but in fact, uh, Joseph wasn't the war chief. Um, there were several other Nez Perce leaders, uh, you know, from his band, uh, his brother Alicott, uh, from other bands, uh, uh, Looking Glass and, uh, uh, Lean Elk and Tohuhuzo, um, who really took charge of the military operations of the war. Um, so Joseph was not a, a war chief. You know, his role was much more the um, as he's called um, guardian of the people. Um, he he was much more in charge of the herds that uh, the Nez Perce families depended on all through the war, uh, and he was also um, responsible for the welfare of uh, the women, the children, the uh, uh, people who were too old to fight. 
And, you know, what he saw and, you know, what their experience of this war was, um, was this elemental disruption of the way they had always lived their lives. Uh, and there are these moments through the war where, you know, their migration kind of, uh, and, and their, the path of their flight mirrored, uh, uh, traditional migration route uh, that many Nez Perce bands have used uh, to get to the Buffalo Plains uh, east of the Bitterroot Mountains uh, in Montana. And there are these moments when, uh, you know, people could almost pretend that they were just on a seasonal migration, that they hadn't been driven from their ancestral land, uh, that they weren't being chased by the army. Uh, but again and again and again, uh, he saw their, their hopes and aspirations, uh, d destroyed, uh, by, by Howard's forces. How did, uh, General Howard's experiences leading the Freedmen's Bureau inform his dealings with the Nez Perce? I think in a certain way, uh, his time out west enabled him to act out a fantasy of reconstruction. In the Freedmen's Bureau, he had tried to establish African Americans as farmers on small plots. He tried to uh, provide them with all kinds of services. And you know, for many reasons, uh, relating to the, uh, you know, essentially the armed resistance of white southerners, but also the, uh, unwillingness of the federal government to really commit, uh, to this, this project at the Freedmen's Bureau. Uh, he had been unable to do what, what he had tried to do during Reconstruction. But out west, you know, he, he could give people plots of land. And he could, uh, you know, provide them all kinds of services, uh, on reservations. And, you know, he saw this as, uh, as humane and peaceful. He thought the alternative would be genocidal warfare. And at the same time, after being put through the, the ringer during Reconstruction, for his stewardship of the Freedmen's Bureau, the reservation policy carried with it the, the promise of personal and political redemption for him. Uh, so I think, you know, in, in some ways, the, uh, uh, he thought he could succeed with the reservation policy where he had failed such a devastating way for him with the Freedmen's Bureau. And when he finally uh, told Joseph that he had to go onto the reservation, and Joseph looked him in the eye and said no, you know, that, uh, that was something that, uh, you, you know, when you read the transcript of that meeting, um, really see uh, Howard's 
harsh reaction, you know, as, uh, the, you know, this moment when the redemption that he thinks is coming his way for this policy, uh, kind of slips his grasp. Uh, and the, you know, the fact that Joseph wouldn't you know, play along with this fantasy of reconstruction, uh, put Howard on a much more adversarial and draconian footing. What are Oliver Otis Howard's and Chief Joseph's legacies? How were they remembered? So, I think Howard has, uh, a, you know, a, a few legacies. Um, the biggest one is Howard University, you know, the the university that he helped found was named for him. He was the, he worked as the president and for, for, uh, of the university and for much of his life he, uh, at crucial moments, uh, raised funds for Howard. And I think his most lasting achievement and his most important achievement, uh, was Howard University. You know, in some ways we, we could think that he really failed in, uh, uh, his personal attempt to make liberty and equality meaningful and substantive, uh, especially when he took part in the West in, in the, you know, kind of the, the dismantling of the Reconstruction Order and the building of a, of, you know, the, the regime that followed. But Howard University, uh, you know, produced graduates who, uh, realized Howard's initial uh, conceptions of liberty and equality, uh, much better than Howard himself did. Um, at the same time, you know, he's, he's remembered, um, uh, in, uh, the historian William McFeely's words as the Yankee stepfather, uh, someone who, uh, you know, was a important advocate for African American civil rights, but was limited in many ways, particularly in his political and administrative skills. And, so, you know, he was an important man, but also really embodied the limitations of the federal government's efforts to remake the rebel South. And he's also remembered in sort of contrasting ways when, when you think about his Nez Perce War experience. You know, in Southern history, he's, he's the Yankee stepfather. He's a flawed hero. Uh, but in many ways, he is a hero. He was, you know, remarkably consistent in his unitary sense of African-American equality. He wasn't someone who parsed equality into social equality and political equality. You know, he really had a robust belief in African-American education and, and uh, you know, African-American uh, uh, capacity for citizenship and excellence. Um, so he was a flawed hero, but he was a hero. Um, but then if you go west, He's much more of a villain. Uh, he, you know, he is the man who chased the Nez Perce families through the Northern Rockies. And, you know, he represents this, uh, you know, this moment of incredible cruelty and gratuitous cruelty by the federal government. And it's something that almost immediately afterwards people recognize. You know, Howard, you know, once he was at war with the Nez Perce, 
he thought, well, winning the war it will get him some measure of redemption. But it really didn't. Uh, and almost immediately afterwards, uh, you know, his, his role, uh, was, um, singled out in an influential book by Helen Hunt Jackson called A Century of Dishonor. And Americans, the, the, just the casual, uh, American consensus about Indian policy really began to change after the Nez Perce War. So there, there are two general Howards. There's the heroic legacy, uh, and then the, the darker legacy. And, you know, making sense of the two is really a big part of my, my project. But for Chief Joseph, Chief Joseph was really a legend almost from the moment the war ended. Um, Charles Erskine Scott Wood, Howard's lieutenant, leaked a surrender statement uh, by Joseph to the press, and it spread nationwide, uh, became a widely known and widely recited speech. And uh, by the time the Nez Perce families were marched from the battlefield in, outside of Chinook, Montana, just below the Canadian border, to Bismarck in the Dakota Territory. People were lining the streets in Bismarck trying to get a glimpse of the great man. You know, he was this uh, legendary figure you know, from the beginning. You know, the, the, uh, he was described by Nelson Miles, who was the uh, uh, cavalry officer who led the final column that, that besieged the Nez Perce families in the final battle. Nelson Miles, very early on, started describing Joseph as the best Indian. Uh, and he was, uh, uh, you know, known for, uh, his heroism, his military prowess, um, uh, whether that was factual or not, uh, and, uh, you know, for his, uh, kindness and humanity. He, and in the decades that followed, you know, he really became an exemplar of uh, a uh, you know a set of rights that would define American liberty and and equal rights. Uh, and he's the kind of person you know the the kind of uh, figure who was very modern in how he defined civil rights. He's the kind of person who you know by the 1960s. Uh, uh, it, you know, you would have a, a poster of Chief Joseph in your dorm room. Um, I think his legacy lies not just in his message of equality and fundamental rights, but I think also in his method, you know, in his insight that, uh, you know, the way uh, policies are made and the way the government uh, moves in one course and decides to change course uh he you know, he realized that uh because power is so diffuse uh and because there's so many different authorities who could make a plausible claim for what the law is you know, in many ways uh you know, these uh conflicts over rights have no end uh there's you know no victory that 
ends anything once and for all, and there's no defeat. Uh, and so, you know, his method is, recognizes that, uh, you know, there's a certain amount of conflict and contest which is baked into, you know, modern American ways of, of, of making policy. And I think that's a, a legacy that, uh, you know, deserves, uh, more recognition, uh, especially in our, our, the, this current moment of, uh, of massive protest. What value do you think exploring ideas of politics, law, and economics through the personal experiences of the people who lived these phenomena adds to your scholarship? So, I think that uh, I'm always interested, you know, not just in uh, sort of the big picture, but in how people at the ground level, uh, you know, how these ideas, uh, how these big social trends filter through individual experience. And I think in exploring that, you can really capture the contingency of history, uh, and you can get a really complicated sense of the motivation of, of all kinds of different actors. Um, but I also think it's always interesting to me, uh, just to see how, uh, different people at different moments, uh, perceive uh, uh, different kinds of ideas and, uh, you know, the uh, different kinds of values. And, you know, in a way, uh, I think that it's really important um, not just to think about, uh, you know, the, the history of... Uh, you know, particular trends or social movements, but it's also important to think about the history of individual consciousness and how that changes over time. How did the decades after the Civil War and Reconstruction lay the groundwork for the legal battles we are still fighting today? So, you know, we're at this moment where, uh, I think even just a few months ago, uh, this was kind of an abstract question. Uh, but now that people are actually killing each other over, you know, monuments to Civil War reconstruction and the backlash to reconstruction, um, I think it's, it's, you know, a moment when we can really recognize how Civil War and reconstruction, uh, you know, were this place where, uh, you know, the battles over, uh, you know, it's a time when the battles over liberty and equality, uh, their meaning, their scope, uh, really get hashed out. Uh, it's the moment when, uh, the conflict between, um, or the conflict over the relationship between race and citizenship, uh, get laid out, uh, and, and then, you know, it's also this moment when, uh, 
you know, the question of whether the government should be building walls or building bridges uh, is uh, assumes a modern form. Uh, and so I think that, uh, you know, so much of what we're fighting over uh, is, you know, I mean, we can point to all kinds of different uh, historical foundations for these battles. You know, are we still battling over the 1960s? Are we uh, still battling over the, the New Deal? Um, but I think the, you know, the, the, I would make the pitch that, uh, you know, the 60s were really battling over, uh, remains the 1860s. To conclude, I'd love to know what you're working on now. Yeah, so, um, you know, I'm still, both of my previous projects were, um, you know, largely about American identity, uh, the, the values that define us and the, the role of law, uh, in, you know, creating, uh, and, you know, our sense of what it means to be American. And I, I think I'm, you know, my new projects really are, are continuing that. And I'm interested in, uh, exploring immigration more explicitly. You know, I think, uh, both of my, my first two books, uh, really, uh, uh, you know, deal with citizenship in different ways. You know, one, uh, uh, you know, really looking closely at race and the color line and the transition from slavery to freedom to Jim Crow. And the other looking at the conquest of the West, uh, and, and, uh, Native American policy. I, I think I, I'm hoping to move a little forward in time and move east and north, uh, and, uh, it, think about immigrants in, in, uh, New York City in the early 20th century and think about immigration, uh, think about, uh, and thinking about the way people are assimilating, uh, at a time, uh, in the early 20th century when nativism is again, uh, ascendant. Well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. Thank you so much.